Well, good morning, church. Hope that you are doing well. And I don't know about you, man, that I needed that song this morning, even in the first service. Just to be reminded, uh, I don't know what all kind of stuff you're going on. I've just kind of been like in this little funk the last couple weeks. I don't know if it's like the rain and the cold or I feel like yesterday when the sun came out, I was like, oh, you know, uh, it's just great to see the sun and do that. But I just needed that reminder. And so uh, whatever you're going through, whatever the circumstances are um, that you're facing right now, um, that while you might feel surrendered or surrounded by those things, man, you're surrounded by God, that God's with you and he's helping you in those things. And I, I needed that reminder this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. And last week we started this series called The Best Sermon Ever. And it definitely was not because of my preaching, you know. But we are looking at this famous teaching, Jesus' most famous teaching, that is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, 6, and 7, where, which I love, is he invites um, anyone who's really willing to listen to the hillside and begins to unpack some things about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And a follower of his, a believer, a Christian, um, someone who is following God, believes in God. And so he starts to unpack these new um, kingdom ethics about really what it means. And so as I was kind of preparing, I couldn't help but really just naturally think, what does it mean to be a follower of God? And I want you to really think about that this morning because if we were to go around and kind of survey, okay, what does it mean to be a follower of God, um, we would probably have some different um, ideas or definitions. My hope would be that there's common themes of, hey, we should pray, you know, obviously have a relationship with God, we should worship, we should read the Bible, you should probably give, help other people, all of these other things. But I almost wonder that as, as Jesus is about to unpack some of these principles um, in the Sermon on the Mount, that He's really kind of trying to help formulate what does it mean to be this follower, these followers and be a kingdom, um, a citizen or citizen of the kingdom, um, excuse me, of, of being a follower of God. Like, what does it mean? And I can't help but think that there are just times, and I'm just going to be real honest, that as a pastor, I look and I also oftentimes think, man, do, do, do we just have this thing all wrong? You know, like there are sometimes I look at people who claim to be followers of Jesus, and I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but I look at their lives and of great concern thinking, okay, are they a follower of Jesus? They say they are, but are, are they really? And I, I'm about to make this statement, and you might agree or disagree with me. It's a pretty bold statement in my opinion. But if you think about it, one of the most damaging things to the name of Christ and to the body of Christ being the church, one of the most damaging things to Jesus and to the church are people who look like followers, right? Who look like followers on the outside, but on the inside are frauds. And here's what I mean by this. I mean, you know and I know we have come across people, and we're guilty at times. So I'm not just pointing the finger and looking like, hey, I'm going to be super judgmental and I'm holier than thou. But there are people in our lives that claim Jesus, claim to be believers, but really internally they're far from God. They're frauds. And I think that's one of the most damaging things. I mean, if you've watched any of the news um, lately, especially this week, I mean, you have people 
And I'm not saying this out of judgment, but you have people like Ravi Zacharias, if you know who he is, this huge evangelistic um, speaker, apologetic, who comes out and speaks, and people's lives are changed. And then like all of this secret sin, he, he died this past year, a couple months ago, and now all of this secret sin comes to the surface of things that are happening in, in, in his life. And I'm like, and I can't help but wonder in times like that, that I'm like, man, that is so damaging to the church, so damaging to the name of Christ, that I look at it and I'm like, okay, God, like I'm going to be honest, like I wrestle with how does God use someone like that to change lives, but there's like a second life over here. Are you with me? It's like, how does that happen? And we know people, and I'm like, you see people, and we experience people, and let's be honest, a lot of people don't go to church, aren't Christians, because it is so damaging that they have known someone in their life, not even a celebrity, who said they were Christians and said one thing, but their life were, were totally different. And I was so humbled, probably one of the most sobering passages of Scripture this morning, just reminded of this, this passage in Matthew chapter 7 that we'll talk about in a, um, in a couple weeks um, at the close of this series. But where Jesus talks about this, he says this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, I mean, this is sobering, I never knew you to part from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I don't know about you, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> I don't want to be the one that God, you know, I, I kind of have fooled myself into believing that I'm doing everything right on the outside, but yet I really do not know God. And let's be honest, in the Bible Belt of the South, that's very easy to do. It's, it's an epidemic in cultural Christianity where people say, hey, I'm a professional Christian. I go to church. I own a Bible, even though I don't, really don't read it. I know what to say. I had some kind of experience when I was uh, in at some VBS. My, grand, my, my grandmama and them invited me to, you know, and it kind of just stops there. And it's really not this authentic following of Jesus. It is more of a front of, hey, I think, and so I think we end up fooling ourselves and I really do believe that heaven is going to be a lot smaller than we think it is. Because people say, or they think, hey, I'm a believer. And I know I, that kind of comes across judgmental. I'm not saying I have it all together. But I think as we unpack where Jesus is going this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to know and we need to be real and stop playing games and be authentic in our relationship with God. Because last week we kind of ended this thought, if you remember kind of this key passage um, in, in, five, in chapter 5 where Jesus is talking about, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. You know, the people have been living by all these rules, like the Ten Commandments and God's law. So they've been following these things. And he's like, I'm not coming here to destroy those things, but I'm coming to fulfill them. And then he begins to go where we're going this morning. But before he does, remember, he says in verse 20, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I said this last week, but if you remember, the scribes and the Pharisees were like the religious elite. They were like the be-all, end-all that the, um, the Jews of the time were looking to the Pharisees as they have it all together. 
They, they have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Like, I have a hard time remembering, like, John 3.16, which every Christian should know. And it's like, they remembered five books of the Bible. Not only that, it, it seems like they're praying all the time. And they're worshiping, and they're in the temple, and they're doing all these things. They have it all together, and then they, they come, and they, they know all, like, the religious rules and regulations. And they're like the religion police, you know. Um, and so they, the people um, that are listening to Jesus, when he says, hey, unless your righteousness exceeds those, you have no chance to get to heaven. Could you imagine? Like, to me, I'm like, I'm just like a nobody. I'm like trying to figure this thing out. And so I guess there's no hope to this. And I feel like Jesus is saying this tongue-in-cheek because if you go to the latter part of the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to be honest, Jesus has some frank words with the Pharisees. I mean, if you think like so often we think of Jesus as like this um, pale-skinned, like, guy holding a sheep, and he's like, I just love sheep, you know, and I care for people, you know, and like, I just, you know, whatever, like, you know, that he probably eats alfalfa, you know, like greens, you know, or whatever, like he's soft. I mean, you look to Matthew 23, and listen to these words that Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I mean, could you imagine, like, you show up, uh, for like Easter lunch in a few weeks, and you're like, hey, family, hypocrites. <laughs> you, know, you won't be received really well. But Jesus calls them out. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And I would say many people think this, is, this, is, this would describe Christians. Think about that. He says, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be cleaned. And then he says in verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So if you didn't hear me the first time, I'm calling you a hypocrite to your face. Again, you're like whitewashed tombs, which are outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so you are also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, I don't know about you, but I hear these and I'm like, Lord, please don't let me be like a Pharisee. Don't let me look like I have it all together and I'm more concerned about putting on some front and, you know, even as a pastor, you know, be like, I look like I have it all together and on the inside be dirty or as he's saying here, be like whitewashed tombs and be full of dead bones and self-indulgence and greed in these things. Now, I don't know about you, one of the things that I've probably missed the most about um, with this whole COVID thing is going out to eat. I mean, obviously, I love to go out to eat. Anybody? All right? I love to go out to eat. I feel like, especially now, um, restaurants, when you get takeout, they jip you. All right? I'm just going to be honest, all right? They don't give you as much food because you don't check the bags, all right? But I love going out to eat. But one of the things that is, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It's only happened to me a couple of times. When you get a drink and you go, and you, you probably have been drinking on your drink, and then you see something floating in your drink. Have you ever had that experience? It's not most disgusting thing ever. I mean, it's like food from uh, someone, uh, someone else's backwash like the night before. You know, it's gross. All right. Now, when you find that in your drink, what do you do? 
you call the waitress or the waiter, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me, sir, this is disgusting, right? And I need a new drink. What you don't say is, hey, um, yes, we have, have a problem. Um, the inside's dirty. Don't worry about that. The outside is so clean. The outside is just awesome. So because the outside is so clean, y'all do a really good job on the washing of the dishes back there. So because it's so clean, I'm not worried about that little chunk of broccoli that's floating from someone else's backwash, you know. Like, don't worry about the outside. No, you don't say, you say, send that back. It's disgusting. And some of you are like, I'm going to Google review that, right? Okay. It's disgusting. And Jesus is saying, if you take a microscope and look at our lives, and he's about to hit on some of these principles, you look at the Pharisees, they had it all together on the outside, but he was more concerned about what was happening on the inside. He said, let's clean the inside first. And then the outside will become clean. And I don't know about you, that's a challenge for our lives of, hey, let's not be hypocrites. Let's not be full of dead bones and greed and self-indulgence. But what's going on in the inside is going to directly reflect what's happening on the outside. So he's showing, even in that passage, he's showing there's a tension between external and internal. And essentially what Jesus is teaching is that in order for our actions to change on the outside, our hearts must first change on the inside. That what's going on on the inside is going to change and reflect what's happening on the outside. Now let's be honest. So many times we make Christianity about sin management and behavior modification. Let me just kind of look the part. And I, You know, even I was talking to some members um, in the first service, that so often it's like when we approach church or Christianity, it's like I can't talk about the tough things because I fear what people might think about me because I want the outside to look good. And Jesus is like, who cares about the outside right now? What's important is the heart, that this is a heart issue. Following Jesus is a heart issue. And so what we're going to look at this morning are really these six sections and I'm going to be honest, I can't go through all of them in detail because we'll be here till like 2 o'clock and no one wants to hear me until then, I promise you, okay? And your poor kids will be like, can we get out of kids care, okay? And so we're going to walk through this kind of warp speed because we got to cover anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving your enemies. It's a lot, okay? But Jesus begins to talk and unpack these things to the listeners to show that this living, this following of Jesus, this being real and the cleaning of the inside of the cup happens when we um, acknowledge who God is. And as we talked about last week, our righteousness is not in ourselves, but in God. And that when we rely on him and, and lean in on him, that this is not just some abstract thinking. This is the life and the standard by which Jesus is saying, hey, in me, you can do these things. So let's just kind of go through these one at a time. I will talk about it for a couple of minutes and move on to the next one. But the first one that he's going to talk about, starting in verse 21, is anger. Now, I don't think it's ironic that Jesus starts with this one. And if you're taking notes, you'll see the point on the screen that Jesus says anger is harmful. Now, we know that. All right? We know that. But I think it's interesting that Jesus starts with this one. And I would even say that in 2021, over the last couple of years, unfortunately, Christians are characterized by their anger. I have seen people that I would look at and say, man, they're probably the most godliest person I know. 
And with the joys of social media, man, they are angry. I'm like, man, they are angry birds, you know? And there's a difference, you know, I, I think that um, we're going to be angry about some things that may be changing in our world or, you know, kind of things that we, we don't agree with. And it's okay to be angry about those things to a certain extent in a healthy way and taking a stand for those things. But there's also a difference in the anger and speaking up for things that are right but doing it the wrong way. Are you following me? And I, I don't know how many times I've seen people like, like, if that's a Christian, no way, you know? Like, and there's a difference um, in what Jesus is addressing here. So let's read this, and I want to talk about this for a second. It says in verse 21, You have heard that it, uh, it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, so what Jesus is doing here, you're going to see this all six times. Jesus is going to say, You've heard it said, in the past, you've heard it said he's referring to the Ten Commandments, to God's law. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. You've heard it said that, but I'm here to say, so he's looking at the action, the external behavior, and he's saying, but I want to address the heart. I'm coming to address what's on the inside of that. So he says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, for whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I'm here to say to you that Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Strong words. Then he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift later. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and put you in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now let's talk about this for just a second before we move on to the next one. He's, he's addressing this anger that's inside the heart. And what I think is so interesting is that he's actually addressing it with other people. Now, we all get angry at times. We all get angry. Last night, I told the first service, um, we were making um, dinner. Sloan's dad and stepmother were coming over. And uh, we we're making some, some dinner. And we make this a lot. You, I thought it was gross as a kid, but I've come to enjoy it. But we do roasted uh, Brussels sprouts. I don't know if you do that. You're probably like, oh, that's disgusting, but it's good to us, okay? But you get some Brussels sprouts, you chop them up, you put them in a Ziploc bag, put some olive oil in there, some garlic, shake it up, whatever. Well, for some reason or another, my wife decided to buy these cheap Ziploc bags, okay? And, um, and she bought them, and twice this week, I've gone to do this, and I go to zip them up, and they feel all zipped up, you know, and I go to shake these oil-filled Brussels sprouts. So, you know, and when I shake it, I'm not, I'm not just like, you know, I mean, I get up into it, you know. Like, if you're not going to dance in church being a Baptist, you, know, you can dance in the kitchen. So I go to shake that thing. I'm like, yeah, and then as soon as I do that, half the bag of those Brussels sprouts just come out. They're on the counter. They're on the dishwasher. They're on the floor, you know, and it's oil everywhere. And so I, I had it. So like literally, okay, I'm like, oh, I hate these Ziploc bags, okay? My poor kids are like, good Lord, dad's losing it. And Sloan's like, calm down, pastor, you know, like you need to chill. 
And I, I lost it. And I was like, I got to cool off a little bit. I hate these stupid bags. And essentially, it just wasn't a good day because in the morning on Saturdays, I like to do a big breakfast. And I made some eggs. And I had one extra egg left over. I put it on the counter. I walk away to throw the carton away. I come back. And at like slow motion, that egg is rolling off the counter and hits the floor. Have you ever tried to clean up egg yolk on a hardwood floor? It's horrible, you know. It, you'll make you, it'll make you not become a Christian real quick, okay. And, and so I was just angry, okay. Jesus isn't talking about that anger. We're going to get angry at those kind of things. But what he's saying is anger towards people. Even so much so, he's saying if you're in church and you're like worshiping, you know, you're bringing something before the altar and you remember there's someone who's wronged me, you better go take care of that before you continue worship. He's saying, hey, you need to go reconcile quickly. He, and then he says, if you say you fool to somebody, if you insult them, now you might not talk like that, but you might say another F word instead of fool. I don't know. But the thing is, is that in those things, as you're talking, that's murder in your heart. He's addressing the things of your heart to say, you don't have to physically kill someone to, a, to have murder. When you're hating somebody and have that bent up, um, uh, built up anger in your heart, that is murder. And we all know that so often we live in a world that says, you have a lot of anger, just suppress it. Here's a book you can read. Take some medication. Have you tried yoga? You know, like, I'm going to stay breathing. We'll help you. Okay, whatever. You know, I'm not saying try, try whatever. But at the end of the day, God needs to get a hold of your heart. And, and he needs to, we need to address those things to help in that matter so that you're not, you're not, because undealt, with anger built, builds up into resentment and bitterness, and we're like, oh, I'll just get over it, and we never do, and we end up bringing that into so many other things. So he's addressing anger um, because it is so harmful. The next thing we see is that he says lust is serious. Lust is serious. Okay, I'm going to start going through these pretty quick. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, external action. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent and has already committed adult, he has already committed adultery um, with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. So it is so serious. Lust is so serious. It's, he's actually encouraging self-destruction. He's saying that if you, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, that's the external action. But if in your heart you are lusting after someone, and this isn't just applied to men. Now, men are physical creatures, and so um, this is usually a weakness of, of many, many men. But it also happens with women. So you're not excluded. But if that happens, he's saying it is better for you to gouge out your eye and throw it away than your whole body to enter hell. And, and so then he reiterates, cut off a hand. It's better for your hand to be cut off and thrown away than your whole body to go to hell. It's a serious, serious issue. And you know as well as I do that this is something lust and, and porn addiction is something that this secret sin has just infiltrated our world. And it's a lot to do with technology. Did you know, okay, and this is a statistic a couple of years old, that the average age of a kid seeing porn is the age of eight. Because of technology and all this other stuff, 
It's easily accessible. So we need to begin to have these conversations. But so, for so long, we've been reactive to the problem when we need to be proactive and set up guardrails and do things. And I hope that you feel like this is a safe place um, as a church to talk about those things. That this isn't like, you know, oh, oh, you have an addiction to porn. Hey, let's bring you up here. We'll lay hands on you and everybody knows your secret sin. It's something that we want to help you um, overcome in the name of Jesus, and under the umbrella of grace to talk about those things and say, hey, you know, a porn addiction or lust is a sin just like any other sin. But right here we see the consequences of it are a lot heavier in some things. And so Jesus is talking about the heart of this. He goes on to talk about divorce. He says, also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is saying marriage is forever. This is the standard. Not that we judge anybody who's been divorced. We have people all in our church that, that has been um, a part of their story. Not that we um, have this, you know, um, environment, a condemnation in that. But we know that the standard for, for Jesus and the standard of marriage is that marriage is forever. That it's a covenant that you enter in with your spouse between you and God. And that that's something that we need to take serious and say, hey, this is forever. So often we treat marriage like a contract instead of a covenant. And so Jesus is saying, hey, marriage is forever. That is the standard. That's the heart of the issue. And I'm going to be honest, you know this. Jesus, um, Satan will attack that, that idea all day long. He will attack our heart in marriage all day long. And that's a lot of times um, why divorce happens. Then he continues, oaths. Again, you've heard it said that those of old, you shall not swear falsely or lie, but shall uh, perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is um, the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let, you, um, let what you say be simply yes or no, and anything more than this comes from evil. Now, there's a section of that, to be transparent. I don't really know what it's saying, like when he's saying don't take an oath, you know, on this, that, and the other. There isn't really um, great commentary on that. But what I do understand is that you simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a truth teller. Be known for your character and integrity to be a truth teller. I mean, as believers, if we are carriers of the God of truth, our lives should reflect truth, correct? It doesn't make any sense when we're like, yeah, I believe in the God of truth, but I'm a little liar over here. It doesn't make sense. Let's, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Then he continues with retaliation. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, uh, turn to him, the other also. But if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Uh, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
Now, this is a hard one to grasp. Turn the other cheek. You know, I don't know if you've ever been, you know, if guys, you were ever in a fight in like middle school or high school and someone punched you in your face and it really hurt. You didn't say, that felt good. Let me turn my cheek and you punch me in the other one, right? You didn't say that. If someone's wronged you, our natural response is not to turn the other cheek. It is to say, oh, I'm getting you. You know, you did me wrong. I'm, I'm getting you back for that. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. He's actually saying, go the extra mile and, and go above those things. Be the better man in those things, the better woman in those things, and, and turn the other way. Don't, don't meet evil with evil, but actually um, with, with love and stuff. And so we need to, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And then finally, love your enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm saying, okay, here's the heart. Love your enemies and pray for those who, who persecute you. When's the last time you prayed for someone you can't stand? <laughs> I mean, it will change your life. If someone, you know, you're just, you're just angry with or whatever and has wronged you, when you begin to pray for them, it changes your perspective um, of them. And so he says, pray so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you um, doing than others? Do, don't um, the Gentiles even do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So at the end of this, we see all this. I know that's a lot, and you're probably like, can we just land this plane, okay? It's a lot. Jesus wants your heart. And in order for us to even live up to these standards, he's saying, I need to transform your heart. I need to work in your heart. And so often what we do, we do two, kind of two things with this. We either treat God like a vending machine and we say, hey, I'm going to pick and choose what I like and don't like about following Jesus. And so I'm going to pick these things because they kind of, those are easier. Or we get into a comparison trap to this standard and we say, hey, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Or I'm, I'm, I don't live my life, a little, I live my life a little bit better than that person. And Jesus said, forget all that. How is your relationship, how is your heart with Jesus? Because on the outside, you can look like you have it all together, you know everything, you've played the Christian game, you've played the church game, but Jesus is after your heart. Where is your heart? Where's your heart? And I know we get sidetracked and we get distracted by things, but Jesus is saying, hey, you've heard it said this way, but I care about your heart. And what if, just what if, think about this, what if our hearts were more aligned with the heart of God instead of the heart of this world? What if it was more in, in line with these things? I think our world would look completely different, and I think Christians and the church would have a greater influence than where we currently stand if what we said and what we do were in line with the heart of God and the heart of Jesus and what he's laying out, what he's going to continue to lay out in the, in the next um, couple chapters if our hearts were just in line with God, because my fear is any of us will look to be a hypocrite. And on that day when we stand before God, I don't want Jesus to say, woe to you, Dustin. The outside looked clean, but the inside was a hot mess. And you preached one thing, but your life looked totally different. And that's the case for any of us. And so let's go to the Lord and prayer and pray for our hearts this morning. God, that is our prayer, that you would transform our hearts. 
it's easy for us to have a life of cultural Christianity. It's just easy, especially in the, the Bible Belt of the South, to say, hey, I go to church, what you're supposed to do. I'm supposed to say the blessing here and there. We're supposed to live this life this way. I, I tithe a little bit. But really, internally, we're far from you. And so I pray for each of us to be transformed in our heart with a relationship with you. We don't want to be more fake Christians. We want to be authentic. We want to be real. We want to be world changers. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to come across judgmental. Father, we just want to be the real deal. We want our righteousness to be in you, not in ourselves, trying to puff up our own pride like we, we're holier than thou. But Father, in great humility, come to you and lean on you every single day as you transform our heart to be more like you. So Father, let our hearts be in line with your heart, not the world. Let us be quick to forgive. Let us love our enemies. Let us be patient even when we're frustrated in our anger. Let us honor our spouses. Let us reconcile with our friends. And let that be the standard of our lives to point people to you. So Father, as we pray, let this be a time of just confession where we're not doing that. And maybe even a time where someone here needs to talk to me or, or whether it's now or later to say, my life, I, I need some, some heart transformation right now. And God, as we do that, we just give you our hearts in this moment. As we start our week, when we go into crazy schedules and, and busy lives, Father, allow our hearts to be transformed by you. In your son's name, amen. Let's stand and close and worship together.